Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Vee Bradby is a top lawyer turned HR director, coach slash consultant who recently returned to our native Netherlands after working and living across the globe for nearly a decade. Through her coaching practice, Women in Negotiation, and the Winning with Vee Bradby podcast, she helps corporate women to proactively navigate and negotiate their careers and salaries. Their average salary increase is 49%. Vis is also a sought-after keynote speaker and workshop trainer, inspiring women to ask for everything they want, need, and deserve in their lives. I am so excited to have you on the podcast, Vis. Well, thank you very much for having me. I am very humbled and grateful to be here. Well, I mean, this, you know, as, as all my listeners, viewers, the DealQuest community know, talking about negotiations is close and dear to my heart. You know, I train on it myself. I have my negotiating book on. I've had a number of guests on about it, but I realized actually it's been a while since we talked about negotiating generally on the podcast. I think we went heavy on it early on, but you know, in, in those days we had a fraction of the listeners that we do now. So it's great to bring it back and it's great to bring it back specifically in this conversation of gender differences and women in negotiation, which I don't think we've talked about since episode 31 with Cindy Watson. And now this will be into the 200s this episode. So, you know, it's been probably about four years, three, three and a half years since we talked about it. So I am excited to have you on. But before we get to all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little girl growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a a lawyer or a negotiating trainer or, you know, a good, the HR stuff you did and Going around the world might not have been, but you tell me. Well, actually, if we're going back to when I was about 10, I wanted to be a vet. Turns out I'm horrifically scared of blood, so that didn't work. When I was 18, however, I read the book Getting to Yes, the status work on negotiation. I always think it sounds like a self-help book, but it actually is written by two Harvard boys that, you know, and it is the, yeah, like I said, the standard work used in diplomacy, used in business used all over the world, right? And I read that and then I decided, no, 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 no. I am not going to be a vet. I am going to dedicate my life to basically world peace. My idea was if I teach or if I help people to negotiate and to settle their differences, right, by discussion, by negotiation, then we will have world peace. That didn't quite work out. So when I joined my law firm, because I went to law school, right, to with that purpose, and then joined my law firm, which was the most academic, geeky firm in my native Netherlands, it wasn't quite what I was doing. <laughs> world <laughs> peace, advancing world peace. 
So I ended up writing a lot of very beautiful contracts. I mean, not that anybody ever read them, obviously, but I, I wrote a lot of uh, yeah contracts and other memos and those kind of things. Did negotiate and negotiated the largest settlement in the history of my country at that point. At quite a young age, got even more obsessed with the subject and so decided to dedicate my life to it. And then when I combined it with the HR work that I ended up doing afterwards. So we moved from the Netherlands to Asia about five years into my in my law work, legal work. I, I decided to join a very large billion dollar company there worldwide to set up HR for Asia. So I did that for a while. And then in the context of that, realized that women specifically across the globe, not great at negotiating. So I used to run these training sessions and I would always have a little group of women sort of around me at the end of each of those sessions, all saying the same thing, which is, this is so important. And I suck at it. Help. <laughs> Basically. And so after a while, I decided to combine those two right into the work that I now do, where I help women to negotiate their careers and their salaries. So that's kind of how we ended up here. So from 18 and, and deciding to dedicate my life to negotiation to now actually being here, I've kind of gone full circle. And here we are. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, listen, people who know my wife and I, or, or have listened to some of the earlier episodes on the podcast, know that I have had the great gift and pleasure of spending time with William Urey, who's one of the co-authors of Getting TS and, and does amazing, still international. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know this, I don't know this to be true at all. I'm not saying, but it wouldn't shock me at all if he's like dealing with Russia and the Ukraine right now. And again, I don't know that he has. But because that's the kind of stuff he does, right? Because yeah, I know. That's the level that he works at. Yeah, yeah. And we only find out. I mean, I, so in 2017, my wife and I walked the Abraham path. So the Abraham path, William was one of the, was the founder, along with a lot of local folks in the Middle East, of an organization that maps out high walking trails throughout the entire Middle East. And they are said to have be on the path that Abraham walked from the Bible because Abraham said to, you know, it's all about hospitality and meeting people and connecting. And that's what the Abraham path is about. And we walked through coming out of Israel through the Palestinian territories last time. And I just did homestays, you know, with people. And it was just an amazing experience. We're doing it again, actually, in April, where we're bringing our own group and we're going to be doing Israel, Palestine and Jordan. And in any case, but when I walked it in 2017, William was on it. It was the 25th anniversary and uh, got to my wife had gotten to know him. The context, we, we, we got to spend some time together. Just an amazing guy. So not just one of the seminal negotiating books, but just, a, you know, a guy who actually is helping. I mean, you know, I more, am fangirling like, like hell. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah, really, it was really. I mean, just, just an amazing experience. And the reason I say what I said about Russia and Ukraine, which I don't have no, he may have nothing to do with it, but the stories that he was able to tell of what he did in the past after the fact, and he's not a guy who brags or anything, but you ask him questions and, you know, then I'll tell the stories about the amazing thing complex he was involved in. So, in any case, yeah, I'm, I'm, you said fangirling. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a fanboy. So, uh, but uh, down to earth, amazing guy. Any case, before we move into the meat of this, I want to ask you one other question looking back. What was the first deal of any type that you did? Whether it could be something small when you were younger or it could be early in your career, you know, what comes to mind is like the first deal of any type that you did? Ooh. Ooh, good question. Well, I, the thing that comes to mind immediately is that big negotiation that we had at the time because it really was quite like I, I we're a tiny country, the Netherlands, but we this was a really big case. Like we had movies about it, TV series, books were oh, written wow. about this after the fact, obviously, right? 
And because it was such a big white collar fraud, being a part of the resolution of that on behalf of her client, the party that had been defrauded, which was a pension fund. So in, in Dutch, it's called a real estate fraud, was incredibly powerful. And I, in its in the sense that I really felt we were making the world a better place, which I didn't often feel as a newbie lawyer, right? The type of work that I did often didn't really make a dent in the universe, whereas what we were doing there definitely did. And so that was that was a that was a very powerful sense of kind of recognition, right, of the importance of what what could be really. It was also a lot of fun, as in I learned so much. I don't think there's been anything else that I've done that that were quite. And I did some pretty big cases other than this one, but but this is the one that definitely will always, I think, stand out as as a really important one. Lots of lessons, like I said, both from. The way that my firm and the partners I worked with addressed the whole issue, the importance of preparation. We had a library full of like this massive type of room full of, you know, files, dossiers, and me just sort of, anyway, we had a whole team of people working on it. But then sitting in the room and also sitting with the perpetrators of the fraud, plus their lawyers and the dynamics at play there and the role that I specifically as a woman played in this whole sort of dynamic, this whole yeah, minefield of communication, etc. It made a big impression on me at the time, for sure. Yeah. So that's a great access point to the meat of this conversation, which is going to be about gender differences and about women in negotiating and Obviously, now you're at the point where that's what you do and you, you, you train women. And we talked about the bio, the great results you get. But let me take you back on a more personal level. So you're in that negotiation. You're a young attorney, right? I remember when I was a young associate, there's a dynamic. I don't know about in the Netherlands and, you know, but I know my guess is it's not that much different. You know, there's a dynamic. With I the- read your book and I very much identified with young Uri, you know, during his internships, et cetera. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. So, yeah, I mean, in the, in the beginning, even as a young attorney, I mean, you proofread and making copies and listening a lot and you get to observe. And yes, yeah. And in, in my book, I talk about these two different people. I learned a lot about yeah. negotiating one very possibly and one, you know, less so. But I want to like dial in on the, on the, because you made a comment about being a woman in that negotiation. The different stuff you bought. So at that point, on a personal level, what did you observe about those negotiations? What did you bring that was unique? What maybe did you have trouble with that has informed, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had many years where you evolved personally, but and to the point now where you're able to train people. But I'd love to start at that personal point. Like, what was that experience like? And what did you learn about the gender differences of men and women and, and, and what you were going through personally in that negotiation? I think what I what I learned maybe maybe I was being a little bit forthright with my gender difference. I do think I do remember. So there's there's two things that stand out for me. One, for example, was a was a lesson that I learned there, which I which I still talk about with my clients sometimes. It's a very practical one, but is that anecdotally we have this like it's a big case, huh? We had twenty five people on my like it was the biggest case our our firm had ever done, and they'd done some big cases, right? So this was you. And yet, every time we met with the other party, we would sit in the crappiest room, back room, like hardly any daylight, right? And, and the partner is working with, I was like, dude, like, what's up with this? Why are we always, we have these magnificent marble clad, you know, rooms. Why are we always in the back room? Like, what's up with this? And then he explained, and I'll never forget it. He said, well, this is the only room 
in which I can force anybody or everybody to sit on one side of the room, on one side of the table, and then we're all staring at the same stupid whiteboard that he was often standing in front of, just noting stuff down. None of this was relevant, what he was noting down. It was all like, I mean, he could have just done it on a notepad in front of him. There was no need. But he wanted all of us to sit on the same side and look in the same direction. Mm. Right? Very, it, it seems like a minor thing, but the dynamic shift of, you know, facing each other and sitting on the same side physically, like literally, yes. right? On the same side of the table, looking in the same direction. That's, I don't need to explain to you, huh? that's big. And so that was one thing that just, just that sort of crossing my mind now that, that we, that I learned from that. And I'll, I'll never forget that because eh? it really, it threw me. I was like, why is it? It's like a third time we're meeting. We're still in the same room and they're all free. Like what's up? Anyway, so that's, that's one, you know, sort of practical thing that I was, and I was really, I guess, learning in that respect from this, you know, from the, the partners that I was working with, right? You could really tell that sort of. That experience that they had, they'd been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? They knew their stuff. And so for me as a newbie, indeed, to be a part of that was really powerful. Now, if we're, if we're sort of focusing on the gender part, I'm, I'm kind of, as I'm talking about it, I'm not 100% sure, was it gender or was it me being a youngster? No. Let me just tell you what happened and then maybe you can tell. One of the things I would do is... During these conversations, right? So there was this crazy story because the perpetrators of this fraud case, real estate, I don't know if you know real estate. I don't know if it's in the US the same as here. A little bit shady. There was a lot of shady stuff happening at the time. These guys were absolutely fine with it. But I, being, you know, innocent, blonde, let's be real, chick, 25, was like, what the hell is happening? You know, I didn't understand a lot of the things that they were just like, oh, this is just how we rule. I was just sitting there going, I'm sorry, I... This makes no sense to me. Like, is this how people interact? Like, what? And there were some really shady parts to their stories, right? It was all, it was quite hardcore. Anyway, I would often bring that up. I would literally raise my hand and say, hi, stupid young chick. I don't get it. Please explain it to me Mm. in simple terms. Mm. And I would use the fact that I was so different from them because they were all 20, 30 years my senior. Sure. And boys, right? I would bring up that difference as an excuse, quote unquote, for why they would need to explain themselves. And it was actually very useful because I, I, I remember at one point to Mark, the, the partner saying like, I don't know, was that annoying or was that weird? And he was like, keep doing it. It's working. Because through me asking these very simple questions, right, or these Asking them to simplify things and to sort of explain this, they needed to elaborate and they needed to talk. And that was information that was highly relevant, ultimately, for our context and for our understanding. And so I guess if I'm now looking back, I don't know if it was gender. I think it was really owning the fact that I was different, not making, not trying to be something that I'm not, but just showing up authentically as me and genuinely going, I don't get it. Please explain noticed in that environment was incredibly powerful in basically getting results ultimately right it was it was very helpful for what we were doing so i don't know is that gender or is that is that maybe age I'm well well it's interesting I'll, I'll i'll pop it back on a question to you because i well I'll, I'll make a statement and then ask you a question too as we i love the fact that we're sort of exploring right you know this particular mm-hmm. thing to say is there a gender element I would say 
that in my experience, most young male attorneys, including myself, okay, you know, at that age, in that situation, I was in similar situations, would maybe be less likely to speak up in the context of a meeting with everybody, certainly, for one of two reasons. One, some of us might not, like the ego would not allow us to show everybody that we don't, we don't know, even though we're young and why would we, you know, but it, owning um, that up to that wasn't comfortable, isn't comfortable. Yeah. In most law from certainly in the U.S. and it sounds like, you know, there's a very sort of established hierarchy, right? And, and it's, and, and one of the issues I had in working with big law firms and one of the reasons I started my own at age 30 was because it, it was this very hierarchical kind of, kind of thing, right. dynamic. And there's a certain way that, you know, if you're in that environment, that's, that's the way it goes. I'd be much more likely after the fact to go to maybe one of the junior partners as opposed to the senior person and, and then ask like on the side, right? So now I don't know if that's everybody. I think that, I think more men certainly would be inclined more to do it the way I was talking about. So I would ask you now that you work with so many other women, if most women were in that situation, do you think you are unusual in, in asking questions in that environment? Or do you think most women would, would do that? No, I think, yeah, fair question. I think that was quite unusual in a sense that it's kind of, you're making me think, Corey. So, so two things. One, I've been raised by hippies. Okay. This is not a hundred percent true. I always kind of play it up a little bit, right, right. but you know, it was the sixties. It was the Netherlands. I mean, things were, you know, obviously I'm not from six, my parents. And so being born in the eighties, I was raised by my father, I would say, we had a term for it. I don't know if it translates. It's anti-authoritarian. Yeah. I've literally been raised not to care about what level yeah. and hierarchy is. And I can give you a ton of examples on that. But I think that was probably what played a part in me always speaking up in these situations. I have no problem with it. I have to say that I have to also credit the firm for it because I have never been in an environment where the only thing that mattered was the strength of your argument. Mm. So really that whole hierarchy that you're describing, I hear it from other firms, mo yes. mostly I would say UK, US kind of focused, right? Yeah. Um, not in my firm. That, that I, can really, I can really credit them on that. So I think that's, that's one piece that that was an okay thing to do. Yeah. The other, for taking this back to, you know, would other women do it? I think the issue is no. And I think that is an issue. Because the whole speaking up for yourself, owning what you're good at, and also being very comfortable with what you're not good at, I believe is a massive part of people's career success. I guess in, in many parts of life, probably, yes, but yes. you know, the, the, the square centimeter that I focus on careers and salaries, is it's incredibly important. And so what I try and teach my clients is that they should really claim what they are great at. They should really own that piece and really stand for it and really, you know, do their thing with that. But they should not focus their energies on, which is what we collectively do as society. We're often focused not on what are we great at and make that even more marvelous. No, we're focused on what do you suck at and can we get that to an acceptable level? I think that happens a lot. And that's a waste of energy in my book. You know, there's a lot of things I'm crap at and I delegate those things and then other people can do it and I just focus on what I am good at and then let's, you know, no, I, sad, I think, sad. I mean, in that sense, the, the fact that I spoke up at the time in that way where I just, I, it was really the raising the hand and going, I don't get it. Yeah. And somebody explained to me in very simple, I just don't understand what's happening here. Yeah. That whole owning, 
of I don't understand. I'm comfortable saying that because I am 25. I'm sorry. I've never done a real estate case. And I definitely haven't done it with you guys because you're really in a world of your own. What are we doing? I literally like I could be talking about that for hours because they were. I mean, it was it was not about board huh? like this. Was yes, yes, yes. Okay. So I really also didn't feel the need to pretend that I knew that world because they were criminals. Like, <laughs> you know, that wasn't a good look for anybody, right? If I'd said, oh, okay, no, I understand. <laughs> so maybe that was part of it as well. But I do, I think that was an early experience where I really realized that it was a safe thing to do, yeah. to speak up, right? And to own that, I don't get it. Please elaborate. Right? That that was no. And also, and here's, I think this is, you're probably going to, you know, with your depth of expertise, I think you're going to, you're going to agree with me on this. I wasn't the only one that didn't understand it. Right. There were lots of people afterwards going, thanks for asking that question. Right. hundred percent. I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, there's so much of what you said and I, and I want to, I want to move past this because we have so much to talk about in terms of you know, what you're doing now and, and the gender differences. But I love these personal examples because I had a feeling that you were going to say that, you know, no other woman wouldn't necessarily do that because I think it's unusual at that age to be able to do that. I love the context you gave, I mean, between the hippie parents and the, and the fact that your, oh. your firm was, sounds like it was really a true meritocracy, which is, which is yes. amazing. You know, that's, I mean, the best ideas forward, best arguments forward. I mean, that's, you know, for me, that's, that's ideal. That's the way I, I am committed to and, and tried my best to run my firm, right? You know, and my, my people often tell me that, hey, what about this? Or I don't think you're right or whatever. And I'm like, great, you know, I don't necessarily know that that was, you know, that, that it sounds like there were other factors and the gender factors. So let's get into the gender side of it because I can, I can spend a lot of time and I, I, I was thinking back to a very similar scenario where it was a little later in my career. I was probably in my later twenties where we did, a, I'll tell you super quick, we did a, one of the early mortgage-backed securities deals. This is way before everything blew up, you know, and they were much simpler deals. And even back then they were crazy, right? You had a, you had like 300 page pulling and service agreement with 60 pages of defined terms, right? Okay, when you have 60 pages of defined terms, people who are not a lawyer, right? Visa's yes. is laughing because she gets it. Like the amount of understanding it takes and time it takes to sift through and figure out all the crawl, because there are defined terms within defined terms and you got to figure out where they apply in the documents. And the event, this was in the early days when the investment bankers had just created mortgage-backed securities. And it was one big law firm in New York City that created the, the template documents that everybody worked off of for those deals. Right. And nobody questioned them. And mainly nobody questioned them because most people didn't understand them, including the partner I worked for. Right. And so I was, learn, I was, I was this, you know, aggressive young attorney. I wanted to be the, be great. I, so I spent day and night reading through that agreement and understanding it. I found like a dozen things that didn't work in it. Right. And about five or six of them, or four or five of them, were like significant, like like they. And in any case, you know, by that point in my career, which is a few years later, I did speak up, and the partner was like, "What the junior associate Eden is on the other side, the middle." And finally, we're on an all parties call with like the clients, the senior associate, the senior partner from the, this big law firm in New York City that agreed these documents. And I start to raise this stuff, and the partner is looking at me like, "Shut up, what do you, you know?" And thankfully, the guy was a straight up guy. And he was the only other one on the call that seemed to understand the deal. And he actually said to me, I mean, I think on one of the like five that were big, he explained to me and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But on the other four, he was like, I think you're right. We're going to look at that. Right. And, and they, you know, they have documents, but to have the, you know, sort of the guts to do that, I would have done that a few years earlier. 
any case, I, I want to get into the meat of, the, of, of this conversation. So I don't profess to be a, an expert on gender differences in negotiation. I, I do have 35 years of negotiating with men and women on as my clients on the other side of the table, so to speak, all that kind of stuff. And I have some observations. And one of the things I do say in my book is I think, you know, and that, so maybe we'll start at this very high level and you can tell me whether you agree or disagree and then we'll get into you know, more of the nuances because you're the expert on this, I'm not. But what I found at a very high level on the major mistakes that men make in negotiating versus women, most often men, it's that ego getting triggered, right? That matcha, that ego, that, you know, whatever, right? Somebody says your company's not worth half that or if you're in an employment situation that no, you can't have that raise. Whereas you know, for women, I find the, the biggest challenge is them not owning their value. And that's an issue everybody has, but I think for women, it's even more so. I have a lot of theories on, you know, all the reasons why, you know, and it's way beyond negotiating, it's advertising, it's everything that says, you know, women aren't good enough. I mean, by the way, advertising basically says none of us are good enough unless we own that car or put on that makeup or whatever, but it's even way, way worse for women. And so not only the value, and that obviously leads to them not speaking up and Asking and standing, you know, there's all kinds of studies on how men will ask for a raise much more often or than a woman, right? So first of all, at that very high observation level, agree, disagree, any nuances on that. And then I want to go beyond that and talk about some of the other things that you observed, you know, in gender differences in negotiation. I think the biggest, the biggest difference that we see in negotiation between the genders is when it comes to negotiating on your own behalf, advocating for yourself. So what we see, the research is very clear on this, that on average, when men and women negotiate on behalf of others, their company, their clients, anybody else, right? Their kids, even like anybody else, women tend to be better. We are better negotiators. This is very logical. One of the fun things about negotiation is that you can quantify the heck out of it, right? We can we can research this to death because we can put numbers on it and then you can really see who won ultimately, right? I, I know you're not a fan of the whole idea of winning versus losing, et cetera. And fair, but if we're just going, you know, bare based numbers, then women on average do better than men in those types of negotiation. Now, that is understandable considering the way that we have been raised. So now we're getting to that part, which is that as women, we, from a young age, we are told that we need to focus on others. We need to not make ourselves important. We need not need to speak up for ourselves. We have to make sure that the group is okay, right? If you're imagining sort of the caveman days, the boys were out there shooting dinosaurs. I don't know what they were doing, but they were hunting, right? And the women were back in the cave, t making sure that the kids weren't playing with the fire and the elderly people were taken care of, right? Our focus is on uh, the others. Now, obviously, things have changed since those days, but fundamentally, right, that is still the focus. Don't draw attention to yourself, but definitely make sure that others are okay, right? We have this really, we're, we're raised to be communal. Now, if you're putting that in this context of negotiation on behalf of others, we're good at that. That's what we've been told from a young age. Take care of others. You know, mama bear type situation, right, comes up. We do that. We're good at that. Plus, on average, we tend to be better communicators. We are more, we have more empathy. We have more antenna. We have a better focus from the, from four months onwards. Baby girls are better at reading people's faces than baby boys. I mean, Literally, we've been trained from birth for this stuff, right? And so we get better results in those negotiations, types of negotiations. Now, when we have to negotiate on our own behalf, we have a problem because we've been taught to not care about ourselves. 
to not ask for ourselves, not to speak up, not to call her outside the lines, not to ask, demand, right? none of that. So we have these internal barriers that come into play there, and they are pretty freaking strong. And then there's also external barrier because we're also not supposed to. So it's not just that we feel uncomfortable doing it. If we go into an office and ask for a raise, there is generally a thought of like, no, you're not supposed, this is really uncomfortable, you're not supposed to do that, right? And so the world, society at large, I know there's individual differences. I mean, I'm generalizing massively here, obviously, but I'm sure that you recognize kind of the patterns that I'm talking about. And so that's kind of where my work comes in, right? For women to learn to advocate for themselves in a way that gets results and that actually builds the relationship. Because that's the thing that are bad at. They're not bad at negotiating. I mean, it's, don't just take my word for it, right? The research is very clear on this, like I said before, and all the experts agree as well. If you ask any expert who is the better negotiator, they will always come out with the women because that is how it is. But not in this particular you know, context or having to advocate for yourself, then, then we run into all of those problems and biases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, that's a great distinction because really my comments about not only value, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you have to do, right? If you negotiate for yourself. Yeah. 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 And, and I've, you know, I mean, listen, I, you know, I've seen it, I've seen it over and over again. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about it. So, you know, mainly, I mean, obviously, you know, as we talked about in the prequel and anybody who negotiates knows, when we're talking about negotiating skills, when we're talking about, I, I talk a lot about the internal body of work we need to do because I, I find that a lot of, you know, there, there's some good trainings out there that teach on the tactical and strategic level and there's, they're useful. But my fundamental premise, and you know, that you read my book, whatever is that, you know, I don't care what you put on top of these tactics that you put on top of, but if you don't do the internal body of work, whether it's owning your value, whether it's any any other work that, that you need to do to get what I call clarity, detachment, and equilibrium, that, you know, you're not going to be as successful by any means because the learning some counter tactics, someone else's tactic is, again, maybe sometimes very manipulative, sometimes, sometimes useful on top of this. But if you come in from a place of desperation or scarcity or not, not owning your value, you know, upset or anger, ego, whatever it is, you're not going to do as well. So that's, you know, that's, part of my fundamental philosophy. So just knowing what it takes to have people be successful negotiators, I'm sure in your coaching practice, when you're working with women, you know, you're not just, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of their inner you know, work that they have to do, right? And which, which means yeah. that you are dealing with a whole lifetime of conditioning, right? That yeah. in some ways you have to help them break through. So let's, let's talk about that part of it. Like how, how do you do that? I, I so love this topic and I, I was reading your book and I was just nodding. So another fangirl moment here because everything that you were saying there, I was just, you know, 100% agree with. Most of my time in the program is spent on what I call the mindset work, which is that internal body of work, right? 80% of the work that we do is mindset work is really indeed, again, a detachment is a huge part of what we talk about, right? Not making it so personal because we do that. 
right, Ralph's come before our conversation, right, of, of why why salary negotiations? Well, the reason that I I do salary negotiations is because they are the most difficult type of negotiation because they're in the context of an ongoing relationship, right? You can't just shout something and then sort of run if it doesn't work out, right? You have to see your boss or your future boss the next day or you hope to, right? So that's an important part. So not wanting to damage that, especially for women that are dependent on these relationships and have an even bigger focus on it. That's a dangerous ground, right? Then it's about the value of the work that you do, i.e. the value of you, right? That makes it personal, hugely personal. Plus we're talking money. Now, there's a lot of people with a lot of money stories, a lot of work to be done around concept of money, right? There's, There's huge. So... Yeah, it it is hardcore work. And then women often, again, generalizing here massively, but have more work to do in all of these contexts, right? We do make it personal. We are focused on the relationship more so than men. And often money is not something, money for ourselves is not something that we're really comfortable with. If a boy goes in and says, I need to earn more money, we go, ooh, content. If a woman does it, we go, no, right? It makes no sense for us because... Anyway, so there is, there is, that's why we end up doing a lot of work in this respect. I actually think that you were saying, right, women don't own their value. I agree 100%. Generally, across the board, do not see the freaking magic that they put out every day. They really don't. I, I speak to the most amazing women every single day. And I sit here and I'm like, do you, know, are you, do you not see how I mean, like, they don't. They really don't see it. That is because they have, and now again, generalizing, but usually for white women, they've only only needed to work twice as hard as white men. If we're talking other minority parts, right, they're into it, black women, lesbians, um, any, any other kind of bias that can work, mothers, right? You go triple, quadruple, however many times as hard, right, as the standard, that they have to work to get to where they am. So th- th- that becomes the normal. That becomes the norm for them. And so for me to then call out how freaking amazing they are, it's like, wait, what? So there's, that's the work that we need to do. Often, that's one part. And the other part, very much related to it, there's a time of overlap, is the fact that they often limit themselves in their ambitions. Mm-hmm. And so th- this, this average head, the, the 49%, that's an old number. I've got to say, recently it's gone up way I should be redoing this work because it's we get insane numbers. That is not the result of strategies and techniques. I mean, I've developed a communication framework. That's that's the sort of the hardcore content what I teach. I'm super proud of it. It works beautifully, very consistently. It is amazing. But it's only a part. It is if that's not carried or sort of, you know, that that's sort of a base layer that we do need, right? Because you can do things well and you can bugger things up tremendously in, in your strategies, in the techniques that you're using, right? Absolutely. But if we don't at least combine it with that deep, that inner work where you raise your expectations of what you see as your place in this world, right? And if you don't combine it with really owning that value, not just intellectually knowing it, because eh? most of my clients, they see, they, they have the receipts eh? from their amazing stuff. They know it intellectually, but they don't fully own it. And then they can't communicate it to others, let alone get it. And so a really big part of the program is dedicated to building what I call unshakable self-belief in order to then get the results that they're, that they're getting. 
And then they carry those, you know, that, that, that self-confidence, right? They carry that forward. So then next time, they're not just focused on, oh, I want, you know, a salary increase. They really are focused on, am I in the right seat in the bus? Am I at the right level, doing my work at the right level? And so they, they continue to increase that. So we're, we're sort of an upward spiral. That's really fun once you've done that deep work and you continue to do deep work because it's homework for life, right? But once you start doing that, it has this beautiful ripple effect, right, in the rest of your life, which is, yeah, a ton of fun to witness. It's truly incredible. I, I, I love that. So t- talk a little bit about, you know, your, your program, particularly. So is it how it works? Is it group program? Is it online? Is it person? Is- yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 10-week online group coaching program. And to your point, you know, it's deep work. It's hard work. Absolutely. I sometimes joke, but I'm really serious when I say it. I own your ass for 10 weeks. You're mine. Like you are man, right? Which isn't ever easy because I work with these high flyers that are, you know, have incredibly full lives, right? Careers, personal lives. So it really is only dedicated that, you know, the committed that are willing to put that in. But so it's intensive. But then after 10 weeks, they come out and it's a whole new world. It's it's very, it's amazing. It's amazing to witness. It's amazing to be a part of it. And I, I get a lot of I get a lot of love from, from my clients and from other people who see it. And it's like, well, the results are there, right? They, they speak for themselves in terms of the amazing roles that they get, in terms of these massive salary increases. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of fun to talk about that. Yes. And I get a lot of love for that. And what I always have to remind my clients of is that they have done it. Like, it's, it's not me. I work with brain surgeons and with bankers and with people that know, I, I know very little. Right. I'm just a freaking lawyer. Like, what else do I know? Right. But what, so I can't do their work. And I definitely don't have the stamina and the work ethic of, you know, the hours and the years and the decades. I mean, the women that I work with often just go above and beyond, above and beyond, like to insane levels. What I am good at is putting in place or helping them put in place that last piece of the puzzle, which is getting the recognition for all that great work, right? That I happen to be good at, but that's, it's a very small part. It's an essential part and it does have great results, right? It's a ton of fun being me and just being able to witness all of that all the time and celebrate. I drink a lot of champagne. So it's, it's wonderful being me, but, but it's really, I'm just piggybacking on their freaking hard work and yeah. amazing success, right? I just sit there and I just do, I do a bit of tweaking. I mean, important yeah. tweaking, but tweaking. You know, it's interesting to me because I, I was going to say I have to believe, but I, but I know because I've seen it in other situations. Like this is, what do they call it? Like a, a virtuous circle as opposed to, yeah. because no matter how amazing and accomplished these women are and how much they've, they've done despite, right, the fact that they haven't, you know, pre your, your training, fully, fully voiced their value and stood up for themselves and all their value and all that kind of stuff and gotten the, the raises. And I'm sure it's not just money, right? It's promotions, it's positions. Yeah. All that stuff. Yes. I have to believe, and my experience tells me that even their level of performance now will even go to yet another level. I'm highly performing already despite this, but now, right, when you have that additional level, what did you call it? You had a bull, what was the phrase? Unshakable? Unshakable self-belief. Self-belief. I love that, right? So listen, I got to believe when somebody goes, I mean, highly accomplished already, and now they have unshakable self-belief, not only will that impact their own career and salary and promotions, whatever, but it, it's got to bring even another level to their performance, you know, as well. Yeah. So 
you know, for me, I mean, it's easy from the company side to think that, oh, wait, women are going through this, of course, and now they're coming in, they want more money and they're speaking up for themselves. And that's a bad thing. I actually think net, net, I mean, yeah, I mean, women at that level, I mean, when, when they get that in shingle self-belief, I mean, the, the, the benefit that they can bring to the company is, is going to be multiples and multiples and multiples than whatever else, you know, than the additional compensation yeah. that people will negotiate for themselves. 100%. I have quite a few clients who have their companies pay for, for the program. So that definitely happens. I give a lot of workshops at companies where they pay me a lot of money to tell their employees to ask for more money, right? Right. right. I remember pre-pandemic, I famously, I was in, in Zurich at the time for this large insurance company. And I remember I had like, I don't know, 250 women or something in, in the room. And I remember at one point there was this sort of discomfort, you know, you can sense it, like the energy was a bit off, it was a bit uncomfortable. And I was like, all right, I know what this is about. So I went to the front front row where they had the board, right? So lots of boys, obviously. And I was like, I, I gave them the microphone. I was like, did you or did you not just pay me a ton of money to tell your people to ask for more money? And this guy, I'll never forget it. He just sat there just just nodding, going, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. No, we want you all to step up and do this. And I just, there was this wonderful sigh in the whole room. Of like, oh, okay, we're good. Right. <laughs> So there are, there are plenty of enlightened companies. I work with some amazing, I mean, and it's not really, I mean, this was an insurance company in Switzerland. Huh? It doesn't get more old school than that. You know, I work with cool tech companies and stuff, but, but also really there's, there's a ton of organizations that see the value. I've actually, I, I, we can go one up, right? One is sort of the individual upgrade in performance and an impact that women can have when they fully own what they're capable of and when they get to the right seat in the bus, right, to the right level to do their best work. I mean, there's an amazing upgrade. But it's also before that, I think, I mean, I'm not sure how far removed this is from deal making. I don't know. But, But what I do think is absolutely relevant for businesses, right? Here's a little secret between me and your business leaders. It's incredibly expensive to lose people, right? Nobody ever adds it all up, but some people have. The research is clear. It costs a company between 100 and 400% of someone's annual salary to replace that person. Yes. In terms of obviously downtime between them, needing to find, right, recruit, onboard, lost network, you know, a ton of things, train them up, I guess, like all these different sort of line items add up tremendously to it's a wide range, right? People aren't quite clear on it, but it costs the company a lot of money to, to replace a person. Now, why do people leave? Often because they're underpaid. Women tend to leave not just because of the money. That's often not the issue. It is the fact that they work twice as hard or three times or four times as hard as what I call Bob down the corridor. Bob down the corridor is your white male colleague who isn't as good at his job as you are at yours, but he gets promoted right? Bob gets promoted. And now we're like, why the heck would I put in, you know, all of the time and effort when you're clearly not seeing it, not realizing that Bob is playing the game that they forgot right. to play, which is they're just hamster wheeling behind their computer, right? 100% of the time just doing the work. They're never talking about their work. They're never claiming, right, their piece. And so Bob gets promoted. Then they get upset, obviously, Rightfully so. Rightfully so in the sense that it is upsetting when somebody who does half your job, right, but gets through it. That is upsetting. 
but not rightfully so in the sense that I'm like, well, did you? Right, did there, you there, there's a piece you could you could have controlled, a piece of it, not not all of it. There's there's all no, you know, but take responsibility for your piece, piece of it. Right? You could control that you didn't know, you didn't. You didn't do that. They need to at least know your ambitions. That's often where my chicks, where my clients fall short, right? That they don't communicate clearly what they want. Now, there are still many cases where they are very clear about what they want. They're very vocal about it and they still don't get it. But often the issue is much simpler, so to say, to fix, which is that, you know, they need to start speaking up. But what my little secret that I want to share with as many people as will listen is is really simple it's really like there's a good business case to pay your people more and to give them better opportunities because just being able to cut out this massive loss right in the us we're talking these are slightly older numbers i think now after the pandemic they're probably completely changed but it was 23 percent of the workforce was actively looking at moving if you can just cut that number out by, you know, a couple percentage points, what can you save your business on an annual basis, right? In, in cost, it's huge. And so my advice to all company leaders is have the conversation with your people. And I'm not just focusing on women. I think the same for, for guys, right? But women, you need to get it out of them more than with boys. The boys will speak up. They'll, they'll pipe up. They'll say, you know, I remember at my law firm, I had two interns. One was a guy, one was a woman. Woman was way better than the guy, but he was at my, you know, knocking on my door after six months. There's my raise. And I was like, why would you get a raise? Like, there's no point. The lady who was much better didn't ask, right? And then six months after that, I sent him out. I was like, are you kidding me? I sent him away. But then six months later, he was back. Where's my raise? And then I gave him one. I gave her one, but not because she asked, just because my, my internal, right? I'm a raging feminist. So obviously I was going to do that. But it's, that is the issue. And so what I would, what I'm hoping, really hoping purely from a financial business case perspective is for more leaders in this world, business leaders to understand how easy it is to have this massive cost saving, right? Look at your attrition, look at how many people leave your firm, leave your company and look at how simple it is to prevent at least some of that. We're not talking here about the people that you want to lose, huh? because that's a, that's a different game. There's always, though, you're great people and they go, right? They go and you're just standing and you're like, what? Words. Often and, the case and, is that you just didn't give them the opportunities oh, that's right. that they wanted. And, and listen, for, for a lot of uh, us men, right, because we're socialized the way we're socialized, we're socialized to think, well, you know, if they wanted, they'd come ask for it, right? Or yeah, they, you know, yeah. Unless they're hard, they of course. That promotion, they would, uh, but, you know, I've seen in a lot of great companies, I, I try to do it in my companies as well, is I'll go, and I think it's a great practice, and I really recommend it, and I think it's part of what you're talking about, is that, um, you know, for, cup, for, for managers, leaders, executives, whoever you are, you know, to go to your people and proactively say, you know, bring up those conversations. And, yeah. and with everybody, I think it's useful for everybody, certainly... Even more important with women who are less likely to bring that up on their own to say, hey, you know, wh what are your ambitions? What are you looking to do? I mean, maybe there's a certain place that they don't want to go about. Maybe there are decisions they want to make like anybody would because they have other priorities. But at least then you, they get to make that decision and then they're, they're not silently. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, they leave and you sort of like, well, why didn't you tell me? That? Right. Like, you know, well, you know, I mean, you can sit yeah. back and, 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 and think that they should bring it up if it's important to them or you can, or actively, you know, do it. 
for those who, you know, who, who have not yet taken Mises course <laughs> and, and aren't speaking up for themselves. And, and then you're going to, you know, you're going to avoid losing great people. So I think that's, that's great advice. I think this is why you've been so successful. Huh? If, if your practice is to proactively get the best out of your people, basically, by, by having these conversations with them, even if they're not bringing it up, that, that, that is part of your success. And I would want more people to take that approach. Because it's, yes, I am doing my bit in terms of, you know, holding my chicks, holding my clients by the hand and teaching them that they should speak up. But obviously the ripple effect, if you're telling the business leaders of this world, right, to do, to have these conversations with their team members is much freaking greater if we're doing it at that level. And more importantly, what I, what I think is relevant here is it's not just, it's not just the, the morally right thing to do. There's a freaking business case. That's insane. Oh. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. All right. So I want, I want to push deeper into one thing and then, and then we'll unfortunately, because you and I could talk for hours. You know, I feel the same. Yeah. No <laughs> but we can't do that on this podcast. So before I ask you my final two questions, I want to push into one thing. So we talked about this internal body of work, the mindset work, the 80% that you talked about. And you said, hey, we have this great communication framework. We have people on sort of that in that 20% range. I know this is a very deep question and impossible to answer in a short period of time, but can you give like just one way or one example, like how do you get, because we're talking about countering, you know, some, what could be decades of conditioning in a 10 week course, right? It's like, what do you do? Like give one, maybe, I don't know if it's a piece of homework or one exercise or one way you get you know, women to shift this, like what? Just this is an example or maybe a story. How do people do that body of work? Because listen, I know in general, I do, you know, people who know me know that I'm a big fan of Bob Proctor. He's a mentor of mine. And because he talks about paradigms and I won't get into the whole thing, but the bottom line is I think there's so much that we do that's, that's as human beings that we don't realize is just totally conditioned. And it's hard. You can make incremental change, but it's hard to make real transformation unless you really break through that paradigm. And that takes yeah. a deep body of work. So it's tough to do. So just, you know, if there's one thought or just one example of the many things I'm sure you have to do to help women break through this, I'd love to end on that before my final two questions. I struggle with that because uh, there is so much, right? There is so much work. But one exercise that I have my clients do and that I recommend anybody to do, boy, girl, like any age, any, any background, anybody is ultimately what we need to undo, because huh? you're talking about the, 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 the decades of conditioning. One of the conditioning issues that we as human beings have is that we're focused on the negative. We, we tend to focus on what needs improving, right? That's the conversations. I'm, this week I'm scheduled to talk to my eldest daughters. We call it like the meeting at school with the teacher, etc. And so I know what they're going to be talking about. Everything that's on the left-hand side of the report card, which is requires improvement, right? That's just how it works. And, and that has helped us greatly because we have moved from caveman days into now lovely warm houses. And I mean, there's plenty of things wrong with the world, but, you know, generally speaking as a species, right? By focusing on what requires improvement, we, we iterate and we, we get better. But there is a level at which it flips and it's no longer helpful. I think we've, we've yes. passed that a long time ago. Yes. And so we need to undo this focus on the negative because if you want to knock on your boss's door and say, I am freaking fantastic. I'm not currently getting the recognition for that. We need to shift that. You need to feel like you're fabulous. Whereas what do we do collectively is that we focus on, why well, don't, you know, that project didn't completely work out and that thing, didn't. we focus on a negative. So 
what I teach my clients, it's the most simple exercise you can do. People that are hearing this are probably going to go, that is ridiculous. There's no way this is going to make a difference. And I challenge you, do it for three weeks, report back. Okay? Very consistently. For three weeks, I want you to keep what we call a brag book. A brag book is any notebook that you get to use where every day you've got to be very consistent. This is like going to the gym, right? You need to do it every day to see the result. You need to write down what were the successes of that day. What have you done that moved the needle? And so sometimes it's little things like, I didn't big anything up. This I didn't shout at my kids, right? <laughs> That's your biggest success that day. It's personal, it's professional, right? But focus on what did you do well? If you did a presentation, I don't want to hear about that one question you couldn't answer so well. I want to hear about all the nine things that were amazing, right? So I want to hear verbatim what were the compliments that you got. Not just, the, oh, my boss said it was great. No, what, what words did he use or she use, right? Exactly. I need you to use these compliments, put them in there. The emails that you got, you know, what your partner, what other people said, that was great. Also the things that you knew you did well, right? Often we don't get the recognition. So then we give it ourselves, right? So write it down and reread as well what you've been saying over the last couple of days. Now, if you do this on a consistent basis, you are retraining your brain because those well-trodden paths of focusing on the negative, I buggered up that particular thing, right? You need to make new paths that focus your brain also for the future on what is going well. So what I notice in my clients and I notice in myself, I mean, I'm on brag book 26 at the moment. I've, I've been very good at this for years. If for a couple of days I don't keep my brag book, mindset down the toilet. Yeah. It's given, right? What, what you're doing basically is that you're, again, rewiring, retraining your brain to focus on the positive because your brain knows the drill. It knows, oh, I'm going to be asked what I did well. So consistently across, you know, during the day, it's focused on, you know, it's, it sort of scans the room for what went well. And so this incredibly simple yet profound exercise I have found to change people's understanding of themselves and the value that they put out into the world. So, yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. So two right. things that come to mind. One, I am a huge believer in the philosophy of tripling down on your strengths and not, at, at least, you know, you get to a certain point. I'm not yeah. talking about young folks. I mean, you know, yeah, yes. I mean, we should learn, we should grow, we should work on stuff. But, you know, in, in Korea, like I, and, and you said it early on and delegate, right? I mean, there is a lot of stuff I'm not really good at. And there's some stuff that I'm really good at. I call yeah. it ISMS use. I've talked to him before. I won't go into the details of my criteria for that, but I want to focus on those things only, right? And then, and then delegate anything else. And yes, maybe in my personal life with my relationships or whatever, maybe I'll work on some weakness, but, you know, but in business, you get to a certain point. So I 100% agree with that. And this brag book idea, yeah, I don't want the audience to underestimate the power of it because I, I mean, there's, there's a woman that my wife and I know who's a major executive at City, City Max, City, City Group. And this is one of the things that she, that she does. And I love the fact that you talked about how it shifts your mindset. And the other thing that it does is she actually does this for the entire year. And then before she goes in for her review and raise, now she's got a, like the, the other benefit is now you got a roadmap. Of all the things, because listen, for all of us, it's easy to forget what we've accomplished. You know, you're, you, what'd you do in February? It's now December. I forgot what I all, had for dinner last night. How the hell is remember nine months on what I did back then? Of course. That's right. And, and for those of us, you know, of, again, 
across the gender spectrum, but I think more so with women, this who tend to be more self-depreciating, right? So you tend to actually suppress right. the things that you did, right? So now you have this, this, this roadmap, which she does the entire year, and then she reviews it very closely, pulls out the real big stuff, and then yeah. helps, you know, it's part of her communication strategy when she sits down about raise promotion, et cetera. Yeah. Because now she can really say, well, listen, this is what, this is what I accomplished, but, 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 you know, my team. Exactly. So I think yes. it's- And bring, bring that, huh? bring those results. And it's, it's really to your point, it's so easy to forget. So having this overview of all the great things, like I have, we call the statement of success. I have my clients make it before indeed when they're going up for raises and promotions to indeed just bring the data and all the drama is what I always say, right? Really- like to show this, these are all the great things I've done. Make it as quantifiable as possible or quantify it as much as possible. Just also because to make it to depersonalize it, huh? to, to not, to really bring it back to results that you can't really argue with, basically. That tends to make it a lot easier. My clients, when they can say, these are all the great results I've had. These were the KPIs that I've had, knock them all out of the park. This is what a person who's highly successful in their role, in my market, in my industry, in my, you know, should make. One-on-one is two. We have a gap here. Let's, let's figure that piece out, right? Yeah. So that approach of being able to bring it back to those facts, which are helped tremendously by having kept such close, what do you call it, score, so to say, right? We're having them all in front of you is, is just in, makes it just a whole lot easier to have those conversations. Yeah. So big fan of it. Love it. So, all right. So we got to move to our last two questions to wrap this up where we're longer than our usual episode, which is totally fine because again, I get talking about this stuff forever and I'm particularly am fascinated by, I'm fascinated by negotiations, I'm fascinated by the gender lens on it. And I'm committed that everybody become better negotiators. And certainly that, that, that uh, I have a big commitment that, that women fully, fully on their value and speak up for it and, and get what they deserve. So I am happy to have gone long here, but we do need to wrap it up. So where can people find out more about you and your, your amazing course and all the work that you do with women around the world? I have a website, womeninnegotiation.org, where, yeah, there is stuff about me there. There's also my podcast, which I, which I recommend for people interested in the subject. I really go into coaching there. So it's a whole different kind of ball game than most other podcasts. I actually coach people live in those sessions, oh. uh, recorded, but you know, at the time live, right? So that can be interesting for people who want to learn more. And if you want to know more about the program, we need to have a call because I'm very selective in who I work with. I want to make sure that I'm hundred percent convinced I can help you, but find me on LinkedIn. I have a really weird name. So it's Vies Bretby. That's W-I-E-S. And then Bretby is B-R-A-T-B-Y. Or Women in Negotiation. You can find me there as well. I'm all over the interwebs. And then it's best to just ping me a message. And then I like discussing your particular situation on the phone with you. I live for these calls. And then we can see if I'm in the best place or if there's another resource that can better help you. So that's how we do that. My final question in the podcast, Vies, is always about my highest value in life, my highest deal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from all people from oppression around the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss in decades. So it's a very wide ranging, you know, view of freedom. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh, I love that question. I have goosebumps when you're talking about that. For me, freedom is, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, and, and I, I talk a lot about money, which is weird for a hippie, right? And I talk a lot about with my clients, right? I work on this. And that always surprises people 
But the reason that I do it is for the exact same reason that you're now talking about your core value. It's freedom. I want my clients to be able to make the decisions about their lives that they want to. I want them to be able to walk away from jobs that don't serve them, relationships that no longer serve them, etc. I want them to have that capacity. And based on how awesome they are, they really should be in that place. So that's what I want to help them attain. I don't care about money for money's sake. I don't care about your salary. I don't care about your call package. I care about none of that. I don't even care about your title. I do know that the world cares about it and that it's directly linked to what you're making. And I know that people care about it also in the sense that, you know, the impact that you can have. So in that sense, it matters. But the reason that I do the work that I do is to enable as much as I can other people, women in particular, to attain that freedom that I think everybody deserves. So yeah, we're 100% aligned. Corey, you and I, man. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's been such a pleasure. I mean, I am, I'm so appreciative of the work you're doing in the world, of the impact that you're having on Likewise, people. Likewise, And yeah, I just really, really appreciate you coming on and being such a great guest on the Quest podcast. Well, Corey, thank you so much for having me and giving me this little stage where I can shout rant to the world about the things that are so important to me. And I really mean it when I say likewise, I've been very impressed with your book. I've been very impressed with the interviews you've done. So thank you for your light in this world and being such a great ally for women in, in the world, because I really do. I feel that and I see that in everything that you do. So I really appreciate that. Right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.